Hello, I'm Enrique Cerna, and this is the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. Thank you, Seattle, for being one of the most progressive cities in the United States of America. Senator Bernie Sanders' first event when he arrived in Seattle came to a screeching halt over the weekend. Black Lives Matter protesters would not leave, taking over the microphone and forcing organizers to shut down his event. We have a message for you and a message for Bernie. Why didn't they let Bernie speak? Like, what was, what was going on? What was the intentionality behind not letting him continue with that rally? I guess I didn't understand it. I think it was radical and necessary and amazing. It's easy to get angry about the rally being interrupted. It's a lot harder to buy into the message that those activists were bringing to the table. We saw the way that they were treated at the rally. We saw people yelling at them. We saw people saying, well, why don't you taser them? Why don't you put the police on them? I was gonna tell Bernie how racist this city is filled with its progressives, but you already did it for me. Thank you. It was August 8th at Westlake Center in downtown Seattle. A crowd of 5,000 gathered to hear Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. The rally is interrupted by Black Lives Matter activist Marissa Johnson and Mara Jacqueline Williford, who take over the stage and microphone and refuse to let Bernie Sanders speak. The incident attracts national media coverage and creates debate about the activists' actions on that August day. Also, the response of Bernie Sanders and his supporters and whether it damaged support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Pramila Jayapal was at the rally that day. She is a Washington State Senator representing the 37th District and the only woman of color in the state Senate. After the rally, she wrote about the incident in an article titled, Why the Bernie Sanders Rally Left Me Heartbroken. Welcome, Pramila, good to have you here. Thanks, Enrique. Also with us is Christopher Parker an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington. He's written extensively about race and politics in America. He was also a member of our panel for the Race, Justice, and Democracy Town Hall in Yakima in September. The town hall can be seen on KCTS 9 at kcts9.org. And Chris, good to have you here as well. Thank you for having well, me. Well, Pramila, I mentioned that you were at the rally. You spoke right before the senator took the stage and was supposed to speak. Um, so take me back. And what did you see, how, what transpired there? Well, first of all, you know, the good folks at The Stranger called it the Bernie Sanders rally, but it was actually a rally <laughs> for, it was actually a rally for Social Security. It was to celebrate the anniversary of Social Security. It had been put together by a very wonderful, diverse coalition of folks, included a lot of people of color, um, and this was kind of the capping event, was to have Senator Sanders there to talk about Social Security and why it's so important for everybody, including people of color. And um, he got up on the stage, and um, as, as you said, the two Black Lives Matter um, folks got up, and they wanted to uh, talk about racism and about racist politics, racist institutions, and to call out the issue. And obviously, there was a lot of debate about, you know, tactics much later. But in the moment, what I saw, and I was right next to the stage up in front, was a crowd in a supposedly progressive city turning very, very, very ugly and um, yelling things that were absolutely not what 
anybody could consider supportive of racial justice issues or of disruption tactics. I mean, let's be clear, we've, I've been arrested several times in disruptive tactics. I believe there's a place for disruption, but that kind of anger from a progressive community, we're not talking about Tea Party folks, P folks that were there had come because they believe in social security and they wanted to see Bernie speak. And so this was probably our most, maybe our most liberal set of folks in Seattle. And to have that kind of turning on um, these two women who were up there because they are trying to point out the historic institutionalized nature of racism, not just with the other side, but even within our own uh, democratic progressive folks. Well, some of what they were saying to the two young women uh, were there racial epithets thrown at them, or was it just like, you know, get off the stage? Or? No, there were. There were um, all kinds of pretty nasty things said. There were also bottles thrown. I mean, it, it wasn't violent. I would never call it violent. But it was scary enough that two young black girls who were back in the stage tent, their brother, Marcellus Owens, who's a fabulous yeah. young activist, um, had just spoken, and I know the family, and so I was I, I was there comforting them, you know, with my arms around them because they were crying, they were scared at the anger that the primarily white crowd was showing. Now I want to be clear that not everybody in the crowd was doing this. Some people, after I wrote that article, said, "Hey, I was standing in the back. I didn't see that. I saw people chanting Black Lives Matter." But from where I was, the overwhelming response was kind of a a very negative response and it was almost you know I understand that people had waited a long time the rally had gone a very long time they really hot wanted to it was a yeah, hot yeah. day they wanted to see Senator Sanders but I wrote the piece um, as a Facebook post the next morning at about six in the morning because I couldn't sleep and I just wrote it to try to reconcile in my own mind what was happening and by within three hours, it had been shared over a thousand times. It ended up being shared over 65,000 times. It went national. Because I think part of, we, we are all trying to figure out how to understand this moment. Right. And particularly for good white folks in the progressive movement, it's an important moment to think about what their responsibility is, what all of our collective responsibility is, to the fact that we have racism at a scale that is absolutely untenable. And to, to think that we, you know, even try to call ourselves a country that's beyond um, color politics or race politics is, is just crazy when you see the kinds of things that are happening. And so that's what the Black Lives Matter movement is really trying to do is put it up to a national level. And whatever you think about their tactics, let me just end by saying that <laughs> we had a presidential debate where every single Democratic candidate had to talk about the Black Lives Movement in a way that I feel was very shallow and it was pushed to you know the only guy of color that was asking questions, um, not the person I would have asked to ask the question given some of his past statements, but at least it was up there. So we got a lot of work to do. Chris, were you, were you there that day? No, I wasn't. I was out of town on that day. When you saw the video coverage of this, the news coverage of this, your first reaction? It was arresting to me. Um, I wasn't there as Pramila was, but um, I doubt I would have had the same kind of reaction she did in that. I probably would have, I, if I'd have seen bottles thrown, I would have chased the bottles down and probably thrown them back at them. <laughs> um, it, it's, I mean, everything what Pramila said, I completely agree with, but 
Um, I would add to this. Um, she said this progressive city, Seattle, I would say putative or suppose it progressive city because I, wonder, I run the Washington poll here at UW. So I, I have a chance to analyze, you know, a lot of the attitudes across the state, but especially, you know, in Western Washington. And people would really be surprised at just how much racism exists in Western Washington. As an empirical proposition, what Pramila witnessed was something that could be seen as anecdotal, but I've been doing this poll for a while now, and there's a lot of racism that remains in Western Washington. So that did not surprise me at all. Um, one could also see this as a manifestation of white privilege, yeah. right? It's like, who, how dare these black girls, these black women get up here and interrupt us from hearing our guy Bernie Sanders, yeah. right? How dare they? So this could just be seen as another manifestation of white privilege. Now, however, as far as the tactics are concerned, <clears throat> we can look at the history of social movements in the United States, and part of this disruption, as Pramila so aptly put it, is about gaining attention, right? Putting it on an agenda of some kind. And in this case, they achieved their objective, right? It, so even though they talked about it in the Democratic National Debate, even though they talked about it in a really sort of facile, very superficial way, they had to say something Absolutely. about it. Right, so I well, think Bernie Sanders had to say something at a rally at the UW, which I, which he, I also yeah, was one of the people him. that introduced him there. And you know, I had a chance to talk to him after the rally. Um, I had actually set that up before the rally happened because I had concerns about where his racial justice platform was, mm -hmm. and um, I had a, a really great conversation with him. You know, I think there's still work to be done, but um, he did. He was great that night in calling out institutionalized racism. He came out almost immediately with a racial justice platform that had been in the works before. It was not created that night. Um, Simone Sanders, his national communications director, fabulous African-American woman who, you know, is really, I think, helping to guide some of this work. Um, but for him, he has to understand, and I said this to him, you know, with all due respect, Senator Sanders, you're a 73-year-old white guy from a primarily white state, and you're running for president, and so we need to understand how you see race, not just class, because he's been, and not that there aren't incredible overlaps between race and class, I mean, everybody understands that, but as people of color, we are tired of not having the conversation about race elevated at the same time as the conversation about class. And talking about those intersections is very important, but so is recognizing that race exists separate from class, which is why you can have in a city like Seattle, you know, very wealthy white folks who still don't quite get the race issue. Yeah, so let's talk more about that in, in, in a second here, but I wanna go back to, um, and again, the way things were handled that day. And, uh, and I think the, big part of the reaction had to do with how the two women handled it and in the sense that they just got up there, took the microphone and, you know, wasn't planned, I suppose. I don't know how, how much, whether it was planned or not, but I think some of the reaction, that, that seemed to be, um, it caught the news coverage. Um, my point they, here they is... They called the crowd racist. That was the other thing. They, they yeah. called the crowd okay. racist and, you know... All I can say about that, Chris probably knows this, I, I saw some study that said that um, people are okay with civil disobedience and disruptive tactics if they're white people doing it. But if they're black people doing it, people of color doing it, not so much. 
And so I don't know, you know, if that was a legitimate study or not. It came across my desk soon after that. And I thought it was fascinating because I do think that there's this, you know, it, this desire to judge based on the amount of discomfort that was felt in the moment. Well, so the more discomfort, the more discomfort that was felt in being called racist and being questioned for your progressive creds, the more judgment there was about the tactics because you have to defend yourself in that moment against what's being levied at you. But, you know, and I, I want to say that after I wrote the piece, I got so much great response. I got some awful response too, but I got so much great response from white folks, good white progressive folks who are trying to figure this out and know they have work to do. So I, I you know, I feel like it was a, a, an important move on so many levels from the macro to the micro. But I want to come back to, and I guess it is that the way that the way they handled it, I suppose, it, what's the word? It would be inelegant, and, but I'm not sure how you're supposed to really describe I, these types of things. I wouldn't describe it that way. Okay, I mean, I, I just I'm just going to say, gonna okay. say and you can, you, can, you can say, disagree with me, that, hey, that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it seemed to me that whatever message they were trying to deliver, particularly about Black Lives Matter, it it suddenly got lost because of just the, the situation and the rally and people getting mad. And, and, it, and it started focusing more on how they took over the state. Well, it got lost among whom? So, let, so that's yeah. one thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is that I teach this class, uh, I teach a class called Introduction to Black Politics. And when all this first started going down as a phenomena, you know, around Eric Garner and around uh, Michael Brown, my class was going on, I was teaching my class at the same time. So I often had to divert from my normal lecture and have a discussion on this, because this is happening in real time. And let me tell you, there, there was a lot of emotions on yeah. both sides. Yeah. What struck me was that, you know, you had, you know, Pramila says, good white people. I, I'm not, I'm not gonna go there, right? But, but you had some white kids who were really curious about why the black kids and brown kids were so angry, right? And so what ha what's, what's happening is, is that the tactics adopted by the young women at the Black Lives Matter, well, at the, at Freudian the slip, at yeah. the rally, yeah, yeah. at the rally, those were the sort of tactics that my students, my black and brown students would wholly approve of, right? Because they felt like there needed to be some kind of intervention, right? Now, perhaps it wasn't the most artful intervention, but it was effective. And what happened was, even if the message got diluted among these good white, you know, good progressive white folks, it actually strengthened the support and resolve among black and brown people. But I also, I totally agree with that, but I also don't think it was diluted amongst good white folks. Um, I mean, really, I feel like the discussion that happened after that rally was so necessary and important. And it wasn't just people who were at the rally. I mean, I'll say I got calls from se several very high level elected officials in our state who wanted to know what they should be doing. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, part of that question was, how do I not get my events disrupted? But, part, I mean, just to be honest, I think that's part of what was going on. But the other part of it was also this kind of, I don't know what to do. And my advice was, where's your racial, racial justice platform? What are you doing to show that you understand this issue? And because of that, I think we're going to see a couple of announcements of some really you know, potentially exciting things. Now, I'm in politics, so change is way too incremental for me. Um, but 
it is part of what we have to do. And I feel like what Mara and Marissa did that day may not be what I would have done. Um, though, like I said, I have led many civil disobedience protests and been yelled at for being <laughs> inartful or inelegant or all of the other things and diluting the message. But it helps. We need all those movements in a, you know, all those tactics in a movement. We need disruptiveness. We need loving tactics. We need people to call people in. We need people to call people out. I really believe it's kind of a messy proposition, right? Making the right stuff happen. I, I guess part of what I was trying to say there and bring up was that I was trying to figure it out for myself yeah. as mm -hmm. I you know I, I was watching this at home mm -hmm. uh, and and my first reaction which maybe I don't know maybe it shows my age or what they get that that's pretty rude mm -hmm. you know that was kind of my first reaction mm -hmm. to to seeing this um, yeah. and then after watching a lot of the coverage and going online and seeing what people had posted on Facebook and other things like that, I heard other things. Mm -hmm. And then it, I think for me, what it really got me thinking about was, what is this all about? And what is Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, we, we have this phrase, this term that's come out, we know it's related to many of the concerns of the, of the shootings that have happened regarding police and and particularly African-American men. But I, I, I really started to think, okay, I need to understand this. Well, and I, and I, I think people are trying to still but, understand But it. to me, that's the perfect result from what happened. I mean, the idea, because I, I had that feeling, this is rude, I mean, I'm not, you know, I tend to not, I, I, that probably wouldn't have been the thing I would have chosen to do, but in watching it unfold and understanding it, it was absolutely, to me, it felt completely understandable and necessary and you know the black lives matter movement it, it is a movement it's not an organization as much as people would like to think of it as one alicia garza who's one of the three founders and i've had the great privilege to work with her on a number of things she always says it was three black queer you know queer women who founded that hashtag now they don't consider themselves founding the movement but when we look at how the movement is being utilized today, I think it's also important to think about how it was founded and why. It wasn't just founded about black men who were being killed. It was also founded around all of the injustices against black people, both men and women, and queer, and people of color. Um, and I think they're still trying to, you know, I think lots of people are trying to figure out exactly what that is. Um. Let me put this in a little more historical perspective. So think about the disruptive tactics that were adopted by, you know, the civil rights movement um, back in the day in the 1960s and 1950s. Those were disruptive tactics that were designed to provoke uh, a reaction um, from, you know, the white southern powers it be. But also it was more of a spectacle that was put on for the rest of the United States and indeed the world, given the, the Cold War context in which this took place. So these disruptive tactics, even though at the time, you even had some black people that were saying, why are they doing this? But in time, they figured it out, right? Same thing with these, you know, white folks that live beyond the South. They were like, what is going on down there, right? And it made them start to interrogate the United States and what the country stood well, for. Well, let's face it, right. the images that we saw during the, the height of the civil rights movement in the South from what happened on the bridge in Selma to other things really changed the tide. Of to... course. And so what I'm suggesting is, even though 
some people, black folks and whites, didn't approve of the tactics necessarily at the time, in real time, it made them start to interrogate what the purpose of the movement was. And that led to deeper and more sustained interrogations, which is the same effect that you're telling me that the tactics adopted at Bernie Sanders' speech, how it affected you, yeah, right? Exactly. And so that's how I'm trying to tie these together. Yeah. Second thing I want to illustrate is that the Black Lives Movement, um, I, had, I didn't know about, I had, had to be honest with you, even though I'm wearing a little bracelet here. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, says Black Lives it Matter. says Black Lives yeah. Matter. Um, I didn't know, you know, about the, you know, about exact, the exact origins. Oh, yeah. but I didn't know that either. Well, I think this is really an important point because, you know, these women are- We are in class are... today with Pramila. Right? <laughs> no, <laughs> yes, we are. I mean, yes, we are. Yes, we are. These women are amazing, amazing women. And people think that the Black Lives Movement came out of Ferguson or Eric Garner. It came from these three black queer women who have this incredible intersectional lens to racial mm -hmm. justice issues. Mm -hmm. And they actually have been frustrated at the fact that women, black women, and the issues that are happening, the violence that's happening to black women hasn't been put up. They weren't saying this is just about black women, don't get me wrong, they're thrilled at the movement for black lives and, and so gracious about never claiming the movement as theirs. They say, look, we made a contribution with this hashtag that went viral and has created all kinds of spikes and spokes to our movement, right? But it was three black women who created Black Lives Matter. And I hope people that are listening to this really get that this is where it comes from because we have a lot of issues here and gender and and is certainly, you know, part and parcel of oppression in our in our, in our world. I agree. Let me let me just uh, make another comment. Um, so one could see that Black Lives Matter sort of as Prilla just said transcends what for which it is generally in most famously known for this idea of, you know, black, you know, this violence against black men. It can also be seen as economic justice, right? Um, um, and so, because when you see where black folks are vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, let's just say the dominant culture, um, uh, socioeconomically, we're still, and if you guys hadn't figured it out by now, I'm black. So, <laughs> we're still, really? we're st it's, it's called bass in my voice. <laughs> so, you know that? <laughs> that just figured it out. It's Dang. like Steve Martin in, in the church, right? When, yeah, right? when he suddenly realized Oh, you can just say, like, I've been out in the sun for a long time yeah, or something yeah. like that. Well, I've been right there with you. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I just wanted to, I just wanted to point that out. It doesn't necessarily need to be confined to what is normally uh, conventionally known for about police violence against black men. And what made me think about this is the origins of the hashtag, you know, about, you know, three uh, black queer women that actually originated this hashtag. This is a very, very, uh, this is a very, very flexible concept. Black yeah. Lives Matter is what I'm trying to, yeah. to suggest here. Yeah. Let me bring up something else here because, um, there was an article that was written in the Washington Post by John McWhorter. Uh, he's an associate professor at Columbia University, author of several books on um, issues of race and this. And, and, and it, he says that Black Lives Matter should also be taking a hard look on black on black crime. Mm. And in fact, this is something that, that kind of, uh, I, I found this interesting, uh, Two Seattle Seahawks members, Richard Sherman, had been asked about this, mm -hmm. and he kind of made that reference as well. Mm -hmm. And then his teammate Michael Bennett, who plays on the defensive line, said, "I don't agree with that," you know. And and I think he had a lot 
to do with that. We want the focus really needs to be on what's happening on these other issues, I think, of, of police and confrontations mm -hmm. and things like that. What about that? I would say that um, I think both sides, you know, have, have legitimate, um, legitimate positions. I will say, however, we need to look at the root cause of black-on-black -black violence. If we think about, for example, once again, you know, the historical um, example, we think about what France Fanon wrote, the famous um, uh, Martinican um, um, uh, activist who fought on the Algerian side, the French-Algerian Revolution. He described black-on-black -black violence as a function of this, of, of this, uh, of, I guess what, what I'm looking for, this uh, asymmetry of power in between the colonists and the colonized, in that because the colonized had very little um, for which to live, right? They they were they were forced to fight over the scraps and the contested scraps. That you had this black on black violence because there was there was so little, there were so few resources over which they had command. So they were forced to fight over these really narrow this narrow slice of resources, and they turned the violence on themselves. Not only because of the narrow slice of resources over which they fought, but because they couldn't take their anger out on the dominant culture, right? So this anger was turned inward. And so I think we, we're seeing the same thing right now. When you see the relative rate of black unemployment vis-a-vis -vis white unemployment, right? You know, when you, know, when you, when you see, you know, the ways in which um, black lives are devalued. I mean, so yes, that is, that is a symptom of this larger, this sort of black-on-black -black violence is a symptom of this larger systemic problem that nobody wants to talk about. And so I think that, once again, both sides have valid arguments, but I think we really need to get to the root cause. I, I, I mean, now I feel like I'm in Chris's class and I'm, <laughs> I'm totally, you know, on it because uh, from the streets what I see and, you know, I door knocked 25,000 doors in my yeah. district last year when I ran for office and I went to every single person who was registered, not just the people who are voting now, and I met all these, you know, black men who were, had been in jail and couldn't get couldn't get out of the legal financial obligation crisis, couldn't vote, couldn't get a job, could, you know, all of these ways in which we prevent people from engaging in society and building a good life. And so to me, the Black Lives Matter movement and agenda is about black on black crime because it is it is getting at those root causes. And if you look at their policy agenda, which they released a couple of months ago, it is, you know, it has police accountability stuff, but it also has economic justice stuff. How do we bring people back in? How do we make sure that people get a job? You know, when people feel respected, when they're gainfully employed, when they have enough money to put a roof over their head and take care of their kids, you're, you see crime going down. And we're, we're going about this the wrong way. We incarcerate people, mm -hmm. you know, the most developed country that incarcerates mm -hmm. the most people. Mm -hmm. we there are more black people in jails than there are in schools. I mean, you know, prisons are built by looking at the test scores of third graders. It's, uh, you know, I think we have a system that's sort of creating these conditions. That's not taking responsibility away, I think is, you know, kind of the other piece mm -hmm. of probably what that um, Columbia professor is also trying to talk about is we're not saying people don't have responsibility for their actions, but you do have to look at the root causes and you have to look at the despair that people are facing every single day, which I see across my district, you know, when I look at these incidents that keep coming up around YouTube and I think about what it feels like to be a black person in the United States today. How can you feel valued in that in this society? And when you don't feel valued, what happens then? 
You feel that way at all, Chris? I, mean, I do very, very much so. I mean, it's, you're it's, an accomplished it's, man, though. Yeah, you know? no, but still, people see me first for the color of my skin, yeah. and so it's it's the old saws, you know, that President Obama mentioned, you know, in the aftermath of of the George Zimmerman verdict. I mean, he recalled times when he's walking down the streets and people are locking their car doors. Happens to me. You get in an elevator with a you know older or middle aged white woman, and it's just you and her. She's clutching her purse, and you one finds oneself. And I'm speaking of myself in this particular uh, context, trying to seem, trying to appear less threatening, trying to shrink within myself so as to not feel threatening to her. Right? These things still happen. The, disc the rampant discrimination that happens. Um, I can go chapter and verse on all this stuff, and it may not necessarily be discrimination. Discrimination. You show up to a restaurant, they seat some white people before you, even though you have a reservation. But the question, but this happened to me at least one time. Well, the white people just happened to be late, and they seated them. But see, I didn't know that because I'm so accustomed to feeling the sting of discrimination. I just assumed that it was discrimination. Where in some cases, it's really not the case. But that's how we're conditioned, mm -hmm. you know. And here I am. I'm a black man, University of Chicago PhD. I do I, I do pretty well, right? But still, when I step outside, people see me as a black person first, not as a professor, not as a veteran, none of that stuff. It's it's. I, I think you know. Um, I I remember being denied a room because of the color of my skin. I'm I'm dark, you know. Uh, I think the the oppression that black people have faced in this country starting from slavery on is something that none of us can understand and I hate hierarchies of oppression mm -hmm. but I really feel like Native Americans and black folks mm -hmm. in this country and I've been fighting for immigrant rights all my life but you know these two groups if you look at the history and the ways in which we have treated people never said never acknowledged it really never said you know, never had any kind of a truth and reconciliation process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's recent. I mean, slavery, lynching, mm -hmm. not having the right to vote, these are mm -hmm. recent things. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not in the distant past. Mm -hmm. And so I think people feel it every day, and I, on my small scale, I've experienced it too. And I know what it's like to look at somebody and have their eyes look at you mm -hmm. and say, mm -hmm. we don't have a room for you, mm -hmm. and to know that, it, and I actually do know, uh, for I won't go into the story, but I actually know that there was a room and he didn't want to give it to me because I was brown. Mm -hmm. So what does that feel like, you know? Well, you are the only person of color, only woman of color in the state Senate, Washington State Senate right now. How does that feel? Uh, we just need more of us, you know? <laughs> we need more of us. I'm not the first. I definitely am not going to be the last. Um, we've had great people like Rosa Franklin, African-American woman in the state Senate, but um, it, is, it, it is a constant challenge, and it's a constant challenge to figure out how you don't just get written off and marginalized, but how you still speak your truth at the most important moments. It's exhausting sometimes. You know, you don't want to always be the person that calls out the race question, right? <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of knowledge about a ton of other things, mm -hmm. and I don't want people to just look at me and say, oh yeah, she's always mm -hmm. going to call out the race question. But the reality is there are just too many times when it occurs for us differently. Our lens is different. And so what we bring with that perspective is incredibly important. And it's not just around a confined subject. So in the transportation package, we're going to create 200,000 jobs over the next 10 years. How do we make sure some of those jobs go to people of color and to women? You know, there's every single issue that you look like has a racial equity lens 
to it. And so part of what we have to do is create more folks, people of color that are standing for that, but also, you know, get other folks who are not people of color. And I do have some good allies there in the Senate around kind of helping. But often people don't see it as their core issue. You know, they're like, oh, Pramila's there. She'll take care of that one. <laughs> so. But, but I'm, I'm curious. I mean, when you, that first day in the Senate, when, when you, you started doing the sausage, you know, and, and all that stuff, um, did you ever feel like, boy, I'm the kind of... The, I feel it every day, Enrique. I feel it every day. And I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I walk into a room and I immediately count how many people of color there are. I can't help it. I just do it. I know I shouldn't, but I do. And it's partly because I am trying to determine right up front where my base is going to be in any room I go into. And for the things that I want to move, who can I count on? And it's not that you can always count on people of color to think the same way, believe me. It's not that you can always count on Democrats to think the same way, believe me. Yeah. Um, there's lots of crossover here, but the reality is there is a perspective that more people of color have experienced directly and therefore can bring to bear. And so I do, I, I, I'm looking at it every day. But I feel honored to be there, and part of being there is not just about what I do there, but it's also about how I, how I get more people of color and more young folks, more women engaged in the system to believe that democracy actually matters and government is actually a really good thing. We just have to make sure it works for us. You wrote an article, I'm a state senator and I'm not afraid of race. Why did you decide to write that? I wrote that because out of the Black Lives Matter thing, you know, I ended up on Chris Hayes on MSNBC, yeah. and then The Nation asked me to do a podcast with a bunch of really fabulous, great black activists and Kai Wright from The Nation. Um, and I said, we were talking about what it's like to be a politician, and I mentioned an incident where I had pulled, shortly after, after I was in office, I pulled together a group of amazing uh, black folks. Uh, now I'm going to get Chris on this on this little group, um, you're, you've got to be committed <laughs> committed with me here. Um, but to say, what is do our get, racial do I get justice? A fee, by the way, for uh, <laughs> you know, bringing you together to do this. I appreciate it. It's a great yeah, service. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm here. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Yeah. Absolutely. But I pulled together these folks and said, like, let's have a racial justice agenda. You know, what do we want to try and move legislatively? and how do we do it, and let's talk about this. And one of them said something to me that just made me really pause and feel a little sad. He said, you know, elected officials never ask us at the beginning of their term what they can do on race. Usually it's at the end of their term when they have nothing left to lose or when they're out of office. So thank you for asking this so early. And um, anyway, it just made me think about that and it made me think about the ways in which I believe that we all, not just, not just people of color, but white, black, brown, we all need to be putting race up front and talking about it and, and pushing through the discomfort that we have. And, you know, and I think we as people of color have to be understanding and not jump on everything that somebody says um, immediately as a racist thing because people have to try talking about it. And when they try talking about it, they and we may make mistakes. Yeah, we had this discussion at the town hall right. about creating a safe space yeah. Um, yeah. for, and and that's one of the things that I try to do in class is because you have the black and brown kids, they're just dying for one of the white kids to slip on that, yeah. 
I was gonna say banana peel, but this is the wrong metaphor. But make a mistake. They're just waiting for him to make a mistake, and I was like, look. I want everybody, this is a safe space, right? And I want everybody because, and I try to explain to them, it's like, look, these white kids and they're sitting there, they're trying to, they're, for, first of all, for taking this class, we gotta give them credit for that, taking the class. That, that's really brave. That shows that they wanna learn something about this stuff. So we can't just jump on them if they say something out of ignorance. You can't, you have to yeah. let them talk. We have to create a safe space for dialogue. Right. And it takes a while, but they finally get it. Yeah. Right. And they say some of the most interesting things and I'm saying interesting with air quotes and, you know, being euphemistic about it, you know, that some people could take it as offensive. But they're asking just strictly out of ignorance and not ignorance in a pejorative way, but they just don't know. Don't know. Right? right. And so I think you're right, Pramila. We have to create these spaces where we can have dialogue because white folks are really scared of offending us. Yeah. Um, and they need to be able to ask these hard questions. That's really important for us to have this open, uh, equal dialogue. Yeah. I mean, we had this incident in the state Senate where one of the senators um, used the word colored and, <laughs> uh, and linked it to crime, right? And I mean, in a hearing. And, you know, I had to make a decision about whether to call him out or not. Right. In, in the end, I decided not to yeah. jump on the big bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, he represents an area where I grew up, well, by the way. And that is, uh, you know, in and, and in retrospect, yeah. looking at how certain bills didn't move around voting yeah. rights and a number of other things, I wonder if I would do things differently next time. Because I think if we could focus it on the issues mm -hmm. and the fact that that language exhibits a lack of understanding of the people that he is representing, that is a different way to talk about mm -hmm. the issue than calling somebody racist, right? And so. Um, you know, we're all learning how to bring these things up and what to do in those situations. But let me tell you, there have been several of those instances and sometimes I say something, sometimes I don't, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out what the right moment is to intervene, but we need to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, then let's go back to the Bernie Sanders incident and, and the two young women. Uh, I guess what I see is that there was a really a learning moment here Mm -hmm. um, yeah, again, I, my first reaction was kind of discomfort. Um, I think maybe part of it too, just, um, this is odd. Being a parent, and I'm just thinking if my kid had done that, I would have been very angry because it's like very disrespectful. But again, it's after you examine some of these things and try to get to know what's behind it all. Uh, Again, it's trying to find some deeper understanding of why. Let me, there's this other um, angle to this that I, it just occurred to me that, so if we think about one of the reasons why some of these white folks, you know, have rea reacted the way they did. So let's leave aside, let's just leave aside for right now, racism per se, and let's say, it could be the case that, okay, now we're at this point where we've had this black president, right? Why are we still talking about race? Right? Why? Um, so there are some, and, and this happened again, I hate to continue to return to my classroom experience, but after the president was first elected, you had white kids in the classroom like, okay, racism, racism is done, right? Yeah. So, so, but actually, from an empirical perspective, racism is actually worse now because we've had a black president. Mm -hmm. And it's for several reasons, one of which is some white people think, okay, well, this guy did it, you guys no longer have any excuses, right? So forget about affirmative action, forget about all these other things, you know, that are designed to, you know, equalize things. 
This guy's proven it can be done on the biggest stage in the world. So you got no more excuses, mm -hmm. right? So that's another source of of this increasing racism that we've never seen before because we never had a black president before, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so I'm saying as an alternative way of looking at what happened at uh, the, the Bernie Sanders, um, for you guys in the audience, I'm using air quotes, the Bernie Sanders <laughs> rally, um, is social that could be another source. Yeah, the Social Security <laughs> rally, that could be another source. So even if we leave aside racism, right, if part of this could be like, the race thing is done. That's the perception of some folks. The race thing is done, yeah. right? Why are we still talking about race? Why are we not talking about class now? Right. Yeah. Well, that that's a conversation that needs to be had as well. Um, but remember when we did the town hall in Yakima, we, we commissioned a poll, and one of the findings was uh, that the majority of people, I can't remember what the number was, felt that President Obama had actually been worse for race relations mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. And and I have heard that numerous times from my white friends. Was that from uh, white folks or? Uh, that was an Elway poll. That was an Elway oh. poll. And, and I don't have the specific numbers, but I mean, it was I mean, significant in how people I, I think you know, it depends that. on how you think about it, but I, you know, I, for as much as I don't haven't agreed with everything that he's done on some key issues. He was late coming to immigration reform. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He de has deported more people than any other president. I got to say, I'm still, you know, I still think that his job was, it's an untenable job. Right. And as the first black man to run this country with direct racism, you know, the uh, religious, uh, uh, kind of the the Muslim label that's mm -hmm. been tried to, you know, be used against him in, in terrible ways. And I think... I think it's a tough job. Are are you always the best person to speak out on certain issues? I think he sh he should have, but I am happy as those folks said to me in that room. Now that he's coming to the end of his term, you know, he's he's certainly speaking out more on it. Well, and then he probably will more as he, you know, I think so. Office. I've heard that this is the thing he wants to work on when he leaves, you know. You know. Uh, let me ask you something regarding that. Okay, you run for the state senate. If you have aspirations to go up the ladder, Chris is actually before we start recording was asking you a little bit about this. How do you how do you deal with that? I mean, the fact that you got to get elected. Yeah. And then, but you still have issues that you 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 almost maybe you can't touch too much because it could. I, you know, I, I think you've got to figure out what your values are, and those values have to be more important to you than winning any office. I mean, I, I, I know that that's harder and harder to do as you go up the ladder, um, and it, I don't know how I would deal with that as I continue to move up, but I hope that the way I would deal with it is remember that you're only valuable there if you're true to your values, and if you're not doing what you went in to do, then why be there? I mean, it, so for me, it's about how you respond to your base. And you have to be smart about it. You can't, believe me, I, people think I'm really outspoken. There are so many things I don't comment on because I know that I cannot create a box for myself. And people want to put me in that box. Um, but I've worked with a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives. I've worked a lot across the aisle. I've gotten people to think about I sold defibrillators to firefighters in eastern Indiana who had nothing in common with me and thought that India was a part of Indiana. So I, you know, I, I feel like I've learned a lot from being new to a country, not knowing anybody here, coming here by myself at the age of 16, figuring out how to get along with people that on the surface don't seem like we have anything in common. 
And I understand that, you know, sometimes to be most effective, you have to call people in and not call people out, and I try mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I try to create space for people to do the right thing because they're good people. And I, I, I guess I'm sort of a optimist or naive, I don't know which one, <laughs> because I think that m people are good. I generally believe that mm -hmm. people are good, and I try to find that in people. So I think it's hard to do politics if you're not an optimist, if you're, if you, if you don't fundamentally believe in government and the power of people to change things. So Machiavelli had it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to, there's got to be some counter to Machiavelli out there. <laughs> so how do we talk about race? I mean, we, we have these kind of, we did this. You get Chris Parker hall. to do more classes. Well, that, 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 that's then we got to get all those people to go. But um, I, I bring this up because, you know, we, we did this town hall in, in Yakima, and, in Yakima of all places, uh, on race, justice, and democracy. I think we had a fairly decent conversation. It was very nice, very well attended. And I, I guess the thing is, is that how do we then, I'm trying to find a way of continuing these conversations, obviously through this podcast and having you two here uh, talking about this issue of Black Lives Matter and what has happened and, and other issues related. That's one way of doing it. But, but how do we continue? How do we keep it at the forefront so that people feel safe? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna defer to Pramila here and I'll just, I'll just drag on her. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know if that's defer or pile on. But, um, look, I, I think we just have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Um, we have to be willing to, to recognize that that discomfort is what leads us to a better place ultimately. And we have to bring it up. Um, you know, years ago when I was at One America, it was actually called Hate Free Zone back then, right. and we led the first huge brown bag on immigrant refugee issues in the city of Seattle. People, people on the city council, good people, right, really did not understand immigrants and refugees, the changing demographics, all of that. But over time, we've worked to bring that understanding closer into the into the public mind but people like to think they're progressive they like to think they're not racist and we just have to recognize that that's a discomfort we're going to have to push through because every single one of us on the implicit bias you know testing Look, at harvard just getting ready to go there I mean, yeah right the implicit <laughs> bias studies show that every one of us have implicit bias of biases and some of us more than others but we all have it so maybe making it making it something that doesn't just apply to a few, but that actually applies to all of us, and we all have to be conscious of it and work towards eliminating those things is, is really important. So I will say, I will like sort of repeat what I said during the, yet another plug for the, for the Yakima uh, town <laughs> hall, um, in that we have to remove ourselves from our respective information silos and our respective networks. We have to try to network with people who aren't like us. Yeah. Uh, we have to, I mean, it's natural to network with people with, you know, in, in social science it's called homophily. You basically, you are who you roll with. Mm -hmm. So we have to try to reach across and, and try to, and try to generate what are called weak ties, that is to say ties with other networks that are beyond our own sort of very tightly knit and thick networks, right? And try to, and try to hear the other side, because that's one way in which we can yeah. do that. You know, as difficult as it's for me to try to watch Fox News 
you know, I'm going to punt on that. I watch Seinfeld instead <laughs> to try to understand what white folk are thinking. And for white folks, try to watch an episode of Sanford and Son. Forget about Empire. That's just that's that's going too far. Sanford and Son still works. <laughs> All right. There you go. The uh, television critic of our time. Uh, Chris Can we Parker. talk about scandal? Are we talking about interracial relationship yeah, right. and all that stuff? No, but you know, her personality, she's always in love with it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, stop. we'll stop there. Okay, now I know what you do when you're not doing the political stuff and all of those. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, taking the time to have this conversation. So, uh, Pramila Jayapal, thank you very much. Chris Parker, Thank you, and uh, we'll talk to you, talk more on the next uh, KCTS 9 Digital Studios podcast, and I'm Enrique Cerna. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.